So have you, have you ever had the experience of a day that kind of didn't start off very well? Uh, things are not going well, it's pretty rough, and yet at the end of the day, you realize that it, it really finished with kind of this tidal wave of, of just goodness. It was a really good day. It was one of the, 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 the best days you've had despite the, the inauspicious beginning. And it's amazing how days like that happen. Like, we don't, we don't expect it. And it's almost more amazing that we're surprised that days like that happen. That we think that it has to go the way it started, that, that a good day could emerge from a, a pretty discouraging start, that well, in some ways that, that grace actually is active. But that's how it is. When something starts off with those foreboding overtones, we tend to expect it to continue down that same path throughout the day. Now, consider the beginning of the book that we're looking at, Zephaniah, that we're finishing up today. I'm not sure there could be a more abrupt and devastating word to start a book. It's solemn. It's shocking. If you look at chapter 1, verse 2, it says, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priest along with the priest, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord who did not seek the Lord or inquire of him. The book starts with a reversal of the order of creation. It's, it's, a, it's a decreation, and, and it, it doesn't start off well. It's pretty clear. I mean, that is really one of the most abrupt you can have. But then you begin to work your way through this book, and you see woven into the midst of the judgment is tremendous hope in the midst of the great day of the Lord. There's vindication of both God and His people, and it's a beautiful thing. So now we come to the final verses of this book. Chapter 3, verses 14 to 20. If you haven't turned there yet, turn with me. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He's cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in. At that time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, declares the Lord. Folks, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this, Lord, we need 
you to open our eyes, uh, to free us of the distractions that we come into this day with, that maybe it was an inauspicious start to our day. It hasn't gone well. The yelled at the kids driving here or just, just a mess or whatever it might be. Lord, we need your grace. We need your Spirit to fill us. Fill me with your Spirit that I would proclaim your truth boldly, clearly, that you would be glorified in all that I say and do. Father, would you work this in us for the glory of your great name and for the good and joy of your beloved people? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I know there's a prayer in between that, but hopefully you can remember that that those last verses are just filled with utter goodness. You know, these verses have a a, a picture of the disposition of God towards His people. And and that's where I want us to focus this morning. It's a message that we all need to hear, we all need to heed, we all need to to take to heart. And to get there, we're just going to look at two points, the the restoration um, by God and the rejoicing of God. So God's restoration and His rejoicing. And, and I pray that that will help us see and savor what we have in our God, because what I hope is that we leave with is that we all come to that point of letting the love of God, the steadfast and everlasting love of God, transform and change us. Because I believe that accurately seeing who God is and turning to Him in trust is one of those things that ordinarily brings about change in our lives as we rely upon Him in faith and repentance. So, as we look first at the restoration, the work of restoration by God, we turn to verse 15. It starts off, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. Now, notice that He does not say that Jerusalem is innocent. Jerusalem's not innocent in this. We, all you got to do is back up a few verses, and you realize that. But the judgments against her, against the people of God, are cleared away. And so here is forgiveness. And it's forgiveness that is uh, it's pointing to the ultimate fulfillment that we have in Christ. Romans 3, starting in verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, so He dealt with the wrath of God by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He has passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So it's forgiveness. He's cleared away your judgments. But then Zephaniah continues, the King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. Just imagine that. Imagine never again fearing evil. Are you you imagining it? Look at verse 16 as well. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. 
This whole idea that you see of this fear not and, and that you'll never again fear evil, I think it's further evidence that, that what Zephaniah is mainly pointing to is that great day of the Lord when everything is set right, of, of really this restoration, we talked about it last week, to Eden, to the Edenic state, to, to paradise. This isn't merely restoration from exile, though that's a, a picture of this grand restoration. This is a total and complete absence of dread and fear and anxiety. Alec Moitier pointed out, he said, the Lord's salvation is comprehensive. Fear is banished as to its objective causes, evil, its subjective reality, not fear, and its immobilizing effect of listlessness. See, the end of the subjective idea and emotion of fear, to, to me, that, that, that's amazing. That's, that's stunning because fear can be utterly immobilizing in our lives. Anxiety can cause you to, to curl up in a ball in the, in the corner of a room. I, I remember when we were packing for, to, to move to Cincinnati, and I really did not think that truck was going to hold all our junk. And I literally had a, the first anxiety attack I ever had, and I had to go sit down because I'm like, I can't do this. It was immobilizing to have that kind of anxiety at that point in time. It, it's one of those things that, that simply paralyzes you. That in some ways, the, the, the whole proper functioning of the body can just stop. But, but think about this. When fear is gone, you're freed. You're free to serve, to, to pray, to praise, to, to worship, to pursue holiness, to trust and rest in the Lord completely and fully. That's what it means to let not your hands grow weak. Folks, when fear is gone, it's not an excuse for laziness and self-indulgence, but it's, it's that freedom to then freely serve both the Lord and His people. Let not your hands grow weak. Continue to serve and to love. Then the question is, what's the foundation of all this? How does Zephaniah say this? Well, it's because God is in the midst of His people. The King of Israel is present. And what that points to is the blessing that's associated with the presence of God. Now, the, the presence of God has never left, but this is that He is actively at work for His people in the way of blessing. He's working with them for blessing in His presence. But what I think we, we cannot miss here, as we have a fuller revelation, is how this points to Christ. The Lord, the King of Israel, is in your midst. Listen to John 1.14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He dwelt with us. He tabernacled with us. And then in John 1.49, we have, Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus is the fulfillment of this. Our Lord came to be in our midst, to dwell among us as the King of Israel. So what's the work of that King? The Shorter Catechism Question 26 asks, how does Christ execute the office of a king? And the answer is, Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. 
That's the, that's the work of, of Christ. It's the, his work as king. He, he has other works as, as prophet and priest, but as king, he rules, he defends, he restrains, he conquers. Now we need to move on to verse 18. It also says, He gathers those who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. And I think this, you see it fulfilled in the future exile and in the, the return from that, and, and we'll see it really completely fulfilled. But it's where the humble, the, the lowly, are longing for the celebration of the Sabbath and the feasts and the festivals. Lamentations 1-4, the roads to Zion mourn. For none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate. Her priests groan. Her virgins have been afflicted. And she herself suffers bitterly. So when, when they're away from Jerusalem, they long to be in Jerusalem. They long for the festival. They long for the celebration of the, 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 the Sabbath. Makes me think of Psalm 137. First few verses. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. The people were made to be like dancing monkeys for their captors. And it's humiliating. The exiles, they're being mocked and derided for their desire to worship the living and true God, to be with the people of God in the city of God. And that's going to change. That reproach will no longer happen. The Lord will deal with all the oppressors. We see that in verse 19. And this is such great news. This is a, this is a book of, of wonderful news for everyone, but especially for those who feel that oppression, who are oppressed, the righteous, the humble oppressed. It's good news for the lame, the personally helpless, and the outcast, those banished by society. In Luke 7, we read in, in verse 20, it says, When the men had come to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And in that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight, and he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. You see Christ continuing to show this fulfillment. It's that uh, the already but not yet fulfilled. It will be fulfilled. The great day of the Lord is coming. And as God does all this work, the shame of His people is turned to praise and honor. And as you look kind of through, as you look throughout Scripture, you see this thread, and you see Deuteronomy 26 starting in verse 18. And the Lord has declared today that you are a people for His treasured possession as He has promised you and that you are to keep all His commandments and that He will set you in praise and in fame and in honor high above all nations that He has made and that you shall be a people holy to the Lord your God as He promised. You see, the people of the Lord, the church today, are to be those who are the instruments of bringing praise and honor to God, honor and glory to Him, all the while being themselves renowned in all the earth, not maligned. Their fortunes are restored. It will happen. I 
Just recently, Aaron picked up a book at a garage sale from John Newton, which was wonderful that it was at a garage sale. Um, and it's his letters to uh, pastors. And, but one of the things is Newton is most well-known really for his hymns. And one of his hymns is Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken. It's from Psalm 87. And it's about Zion. It's about the church. And the last, the last verse says this, Savior, if of Zion's city I through grace a member am, let the world deride or pity, I will glory in thy name. Fading is the worldling's pleasure, all his boasted pomp and show, solid joys and lasting treasure, none but Zion's children know. Like, it's just beautiful the way he wrote and talking to him that, that there'll be renowned and praise. We know that which is good. Let, let the world mock us now. We know the outcome. We know what our Lord will do. He's faithful to do it. It's the work of the Lord. And, and we see this more and more. We, last week, we talked about the, the power of I will. And we see, continue to see the I will statements throughout because this is God's work of restoration, of healing, of bringing life, of vindication, of gathering and exalting. Everything has changed. You begin to see that the sad things are becoming untrue. They're being reversed. But there is more to address in this text. And it's really the high point of this book. And it's, it's the text that, that many of us are familiar with, but I dare say not enough of us have taken to heart what it actually says. Especially in the day-to-day. We have a hard time internalizing what this text teaches because sadly, I think too often, people are taught a much different and an erroneous view of who God is from the Old Testament, that He's this mean and stern and, and God who hates everybody. And that's a pity, and it's a shame, because this is a text that is not out of place in Zephaniah nor in the Old Testament. This is a glorious passage. As one commentator said, this is, verse 17, is the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This is the verse that, that we need to know. Hold up a banner at a, at a football that says Zephaniah 317. Just try that once, okay? That would be fun. I would, I, I would love to see somebody here do that. But let's read this again, starting in verse 15. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Verse 17, this is, this is the God who judges the nations and all the peoples in holiness and in righteousness and yet is full of steadfast love and mercy God who is gracious and compassionate. The Lord your God is in your midst. We've already addressed that, that presence of God, but I want to read one, more, one other text, Isaiah seven fourteen. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive 
and bear a son and shall call his name what? Emmanuel. Which means God with us, the Savior, Jesus, is that fulfillment of that presence with us. And this is the God who is with us, is the one who is mighty, who will save. The term mighty one, it's used throughout Scripture. It's used of the Father. One example is Psalm 24, 8. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. But that term is also used of the Messiah. Another one in Isaiah, chapter 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then what does this mighty one do? He saves. He saves. He saves in a way that no one can stop him. We have, his people have been called. We've been justified. We've been glorified. Romans 8.30. Through the blood of Christ, we are redeemed from our sin and rebellion. And none is able to snatch one of his children from his hand. John 10.29. In him, we've been given all that we need, all the spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Ephesians 1 verse 3. And he saves fully and completely. And our job is to rest in him, to fall upon him, to take refuge in him and his work, to repent and believe, because he's the mighty one who will save. But not only does he save, he will rejoice over you with gladness. Now I'm going to ask you to do something here. Close your eyes. Close your eyes and picture just that. Now it doesn't have to be picturing the Lord. But picture someone that you love and respect and admire and honor. And that they're rejoicing over you right now in gladness. Someone taking great delight in you. Just picture the look on their face. The look that, that the one who loves you gives you. As, as they watch you and they just absolutely beam from ear to ear over you. You can open your eyes, but isn't that life-giving? You know, I, as I was writing, I got kind of the, the goosebumps from thinking about that. Of here is, is not just someone who I love and respect here, who means the world to me, but the Lord himself is rejoicing over me, his child, his too often rebellious child, with gladness. Charles Simeon wrote, You may see in the parable of the prodigal son what are the feelings of Jehovah towards returning penitence. But if that convey not an adequate idea to your minds, call to mind the image under which God has condescended to set forth the joy which he feels in his believing people. Nothing that a natural man can experience can exceed the joy with which a bridegroom, after a long season of suspense and fear, is animated in the possession of his bride. Yet to that does Jehovah refer as most fitly illustrating the delight which he has in manifesting his love to his chosen people. Isaiah 62, verses 3 to 5, we read, You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight 
is in her. And your land married, for the Lord delights in you. And your land shall be married, for as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Folks, it's been almost 20 years, and I can still remember vividly the moment Aaron walked down the aisle to me. It was, it was stunning, and honestly, that is one of the most favorite things I get to do at a wedding. I do not watch the bride. I watch the groom and his face just light up. That gives me as much joy as anything else to see him just go, oh my goodness, she is coming to me. And he delights in her, and the Lord delights in us, his children. And that is just an analogy. It doesn't compare to how he truly delights in his people. It's pure and utter joy and delight. But folks, there's still more in this text. He will quiet you by his love. Now, there is a bit of discussion in this text. It's hard to translate, whether it should be translated like we've read it or like the New American Standard says, he will be quiet in his love. And so the difference is really being the nature of the verb. Is it one that affects someone else, or is it speaking of the disposition of the one doing the the action, doing the loving? So is it that by his love our anxious and fearful souls are quieted, are stilled, are cared for, are shepherded? Or is it that God himself is satisfied, that he is at, at rest in his love, as Calvin put it, that God wish nothing more than sweetly and quietly to cherish his church. Honestly, I think either way, the result is really the same thing. I think the disposition of God will be the same, and, and the result is the same. The Lord loves his people dearly with a steadfast, faithful love that does quiet our souls, our anxiety, our worry, our pain, our heartache, quiets you. He leads us beside quiet waters. He restores our souls. And then further, He will exalt over you with loud singing. Psalm 147, 11, the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear Him, in those who hope in His steadfast love. Do, Do you, just that whole idea, but this is an active rejoicing and delighting in. It is shouts of joy. Not our shouts of joy, but the Lord. Remember, God who spoke the universe into existence exults over you with loud singing. I find that hard to comprehend. Let me ask this question. Do you believe that the Lord takes pleasure in you? Or do you have a tendency to believe that He merely tolerates you. Now, I'm not saying He can't be disappointed in our sin, but what do you think is His disposition towards you? Because here we see that God rejoices over you. He exalts, He shouts for joy over you. You, the the church, the the people of God, the child of God, are loved with an everlasting love by the sovereign creator. 
And it really is almost completely unfathomable, but we have proof that he does this. God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't die for us so that, Christ didn't die for us, folks, so that God could love us. Never mess that up. Christ died for us because he loved us. You flip that around, you've messed everything up. And you will not understand how God can love you. He loves you because he loves you. I've told you this before. I used to tell my kids when I go to bed, why do I love you? And the only answer that was right was because I love them. It wasn't anything that they did. It's because they're mine and I love them. So how do we respond to this? Charles Simeon again wrote this. He says, Look back to your own ways, my brethren, and you will have reason enough to adore and magnify the grace of God when you consider that you also are interested in these promises and that in you shall they receive a speedy accomplishment. Dear brethren, I would have this to be, if I may so say, the constant subject of your devoutest meditations. It is this that will set your hearts at liberty and cause you to go on your way rejoicing. Nothing can obstruct the happiness of a mind habituated to such contemplations as these. Do you hear what he's saying? If your mind is set on this, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, but set your mind on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Set your mind on His love. Contemplate it, and you'll not be shaken. No matter what happens in your day-to-day, how cruddy work was, how bad the drive was, how upset you are at family, whatever, God's love changes us. I think of 1 John 3, very first verse. Seer, behold what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. He's saying, behold it, look at it, contemplate it. We need to learn to contemplate this, folks. We need to, to, to enjoy the enjoyment of God. We need to enjoy the enjoyment of God. We need to enjoy what God enjoys. Be forgiven. Rest in that love. Let it change you. We need to be people who are happy. Didn't look at verse 14, but starting off this whole thing is, sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem, because the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Folks, we need to be people transformed and freed by these truths. We are much better off if we allow these truths to free us. Ian Duguid is Um, great commentator, and he wrote this. He said, if we think that God forgives us only because he must, 
then we will be slow to come to Him with our joys and our sorrows, our successes and our sins. Deep down, we will be afraid that He isn't really interested in us or delighted by us. We imagine that God will be slow to forgive our acts of rebellion against Him because our darkest failures underscore our deep fear that God is constantly disappointed in us, like an angry school teacher faced with a class of dull and stupid children. We imagine God is constantly wearing a frown. Folks, that's not Zephaniah's picture, and that is not the picture in Scripture. God delights in His children. He didn't choose us because we were more in number or anything else. He chose us because He loves us. He set His love upon us. So it's not because we are great that we've done everything to earn it, but because we are united to Christ. We are His, and He rejoices. He loves us. He sings over us. So let, folks, let that freedom, let that reality change us. Let it free us to have hands that work and wait for Him, hearts that long for Him, minds that strive for Him, souls at peace in Him. We looked at this benediction, Jude 20 and 21. But you, beloved, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. And praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves, what? In the love of God. Waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. He doesn't say, keep yourself in the good graces of God. That's a works righteousness mentality. He says, keep yourselves in the love of God. Know that love. Focus upon the God who loves. And it will change you. It will build you up in your most holy faith. So, so folks, rest. Build yourselves up in savor the love of God for you, for the church, for the people of God, because it is an unchanging, everlasting, covenantal love that will never, ever let you go. The great day of the Lord is coming when all will be set right, but we can rest in the love of God that is bringing it about. Okay, this love of God that is far beyond what tongue or pen could ever tell. So don't allow a moment to go by in your life as best as you can. And I am talking to myself more than any of you. Don't let a moment go by without delighting in and savoring the love of God for you as His child, who is that by faith and repentance. Rest in that. Believe how much He loves His children. Savor it. Let's pray. Father, this is a picture that I don't think we consider enough, and I think too often we have a completely different picture of who you are. Lord, let truth change us. We'll, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Set us free from anxiety, from fear, from, from worry, even in going to you, from the thought that I, I can't share that or I can't do that because God will be disappointed. Lord, free us from those erroneous thoughts. Give us life and freedom in Christ in the love that you have for your children. 
Without that love, we would be lost, but because of that love, we are safe and sound and secure. Lord, be glorified in us by working that love deeply into each of our hearts. And if there's anyone that doesn't yet know that love, Lord, draw them to you, that they would rest in you, that they would repent and believe and know the love of the true Father who loves with a perfect and everlasting love. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.